An important part of your mental training concerns learning how to control your mindsets. In the previous podcast, we introduced the topic of mindsets. Our minds are often influenced by powerful belief systems about who we are, our sense of self, and about how the world operates, our sense of the world. Once these mindsets make their way into our minds, they operate largely outside of conscious awareness. We aren't aware that they are influencing our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Mindsets can be supportive and beneficial, or they can be corrosive and undermine our ability to flourish. Maladaptive mindsets can diminish our ability to live long and to live well. So, an important part of your mental training concerns learning how to control your mindsets. You want to minimize the influence of negative and maladaptive mindsets. You want to optimize the benefits of positive and adaptive mindsets. You want to get to a place where you can recognize when you're being led astray by a negative mindset and then be able to gracefully perform a mindset reset, a flip from the negative side over to the positive side. The first step in this process is awareness. As we said, mindsets tend to operate on the quiet. They do their work under the radar, outside of conscious awareness. So the first task of mental training around mindsets is to become better at detecting their stealthy presence. To get this process started, it's useful to identify some common types of mindsets that influence a lot of people. Perhaps the easiest and most familiar example is a positivity-negativity mindset. In the previous podcast, we observed that mindsets seem to operate as dyads. They are a unity of opposites. They tend to operate in an either-or manner. So you either have a positive attitude about what's going on, or you have a negative attitude. So once you become aware that you are operating out of a negative mindset, your next step in mental management is to flip the dyad, flip from the negative side to the positive side. The more you practice the skill of mindset resets in a training setting, the better prepared you will be to perform a reset during a real-life situation. Like an athlete, you do a lot of advanced training under controlled settings so that you are as prepared as possible for the real event. So let's take a closer look at the positivity-negativity mindset. The positivity-negativity mindset. Now you're likely to be familiar with the two dyads of this mindset, positivity and negativity. We often note that a person is either an optimist or a pessimist. We describe optimists as seeing the glass half full, while pessimists see it as half empty. The optimist look forward to whatever remains in the glass, and the pessimist ruse the fact that the, the glass is already half empty, it's already half gone. Now, the new field of positive psychology is almost dedicated to helping people accentuate the positive. It focuses specifically on helping people develop the mental capacity to generate good feelings and to cultivate happiness, meaning, and purpose in their lives. Traditional psychology focused on the important task of helping people escape from depression, anxiety, and the many ways we experience life in a negative way. 
but positive psychologists like Martin Seligman began to realize that freeing people from misery did not automatically make them happy. Happiness is not the absence of sadness. Positive psychologists call the state between depression and happiness a state of languishing. In this state, there is an absence of feeling. When we languish, we neither feel good nor bad. It's a state of lifeless limbo. So happiness and positivity, it turns out, need to be cultivated. They need to be learned. They don't happen simply by removing negativity. Happiness, it turns out, has to be prioritized, emphasized, and cultivated. Figure out what brings you happiness and do more of those things. Figure out what kinds of interactions evoke positive feelings about people and, and activities and do more of them. Feed the positive wolves while starving the negative ones. Now, mind you, there are benefits to negative emotions. Negative emotions serve important adaptive functions. Negative emotions such as fear and anxiety keep us alert to potential dangers. Our brain is highly sensitive to stimuli in the environment that are different and surprising and easily shifts into a negative fight-or-flight mindset. Negativity prepares us to take action if things go wrong. This negative reaction is highly beneficial when we are in real danger, but it should be a short-term reaction. Chronic negativity and chronic stress are what's dangerous. We need to turn off negativity when it is no longer needed and shift into a more positive, optimistic, growth-producing mindset. Now, positive feelings and positivity do more for us than just make us feel good. Positive psychologist Barbara Fredrickson has a theory she calls broaden and build. According to Fredrickson, our cognitive field of vision, so to speak, narrows and becomes highly focused when we are feeling negative emotions. This makes sense because our mind needs to focus exclusively on the perceived threat. But we need our mind to open up and be more receptive and curious in order to explore and investigate the world. This expansion of the mind happens when we are experiencing positive emotions, when we feel safe secure and content, the range of our attention and curiosity broadens and undergoes the learning processes that help build the mind. Positive emotions broaden our perspective and give us the opportunity to build cognitive strengths and strategies that have long-term benefits. Positivity, in other words, promotes cognitive growth and development. So it's important to recognize when you are holding on to a negative mindset longer than necessary. Let it go. Look at things from a positive, optimistic perspective. As the popular song advises, Accentuate the positive. Eliminate the negative. Latch on to the affirmative. Don't you mess with Mr. In-Between. Another well-known mindset is the growth mindset, first suggested by psychologist Carol Dweck. Now, according to Dweck, people tend to operate out of either a growth or a fixed mindset. That's the dyad, growth and fixed. This mindset dyad has a profound effect on the way people approach their own potential for learning, growth, and development. People with a fixed mindset believe that their talents, aptitudes, and intelligence are fixed at birth. 
They believe that their ability for growth and development has been constrained by their genetic inheritance, and that there's little that they can really do to change these constraints. So someone who claims that they have never been good at math, for example, and therefore never put any effort into learning math, is operating out of a fixed mindset. And people with a fixed mindset believe that whatever talents they have are due to fate, not to their own ability to learn and grow or to, their, to the amount of energy and effort that they put into it. They are therefore reluctant to test their talents or intelligence for fear that their limitations will be exposed. Now, people with a growth mindset, you flip that mindset from fixed over to growth, they believe that their talents, aptitudes, and intelligence are mutable and subject to change. They believe that with effort, they can learn and get better at whatever they set their mind to, and they are therefore stimulated by the challenge. So when you're operating out of a fixed mindset, uh, it tends to limit your ability to grow and to learn. It causes you to avoid taking risks. On the other hand, a growth mindset stimulates our curiosity or risk-taking or inquisitive, and in so doing, increases our ability to develop our potential. Hence, we characterize this dyad, as I said, as a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. As an example, someone who says, I did well because I am smart, is really operating out of a fixed mindset, as opposed to, I did well because I worked hard, putting in the required time and effort. That's more of a growth mindset. Another example, I wasn't born with the gene for math, or you could substitute art or sports or, or whatever. That's a fixed mindset, as opposed to, well, I'm sure I could improve my skills in math with a little effort. That's more of a growth mindset. So when, when you're confronted with a challenge, become more aware of whether you are operating from a fixed or a growth mindset. If a fixed mindset is holding you back, just become aware of that. Tell your mind to do a flip and start operating from a growth mindset. When you're rehearsing, when you're training for this, you sort of think through, what would it be like if I approached this from a growth mindset, from the idea that I could actually learn if I put in time and effort? An asset-based versus a deficit-based mindset. This is the mindset that makes assumptions about certain groups of people. It assumes that you do something wrong because you are a certain type of person, because you are a member of a certain group. Or conversely, this mindset assumes that you must be right and just because you are a certain age, a certain color, or you're considered a certain type of person. In the context of age, this mindset is in operation when we assume that young people can do something better more, or more easily than older people can. There have been brain studies, for example, that have shown that when young people and old people are given the same cognitive tasks, their brains are activated in different ways. In young people, the left hemisphere lights up exclusively, while in older people, both hemispheres, the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere, light up. This has been dubbed the Harold Effect, H-A-R-O-L-D, and it stands for, sit down, Hemispheric Asymmetry Reduction in Older Adults. Say that four times while chewing gum. Well, some scientists have a deficit-based mindset about older subjects and interpret this Harold data from that deficit-based perspective. 
They assume the younger brains are performing better on the task and that left hemisphere activation, which is what they saw in the fMRIs of young brains, they assume that that's normal. Therefore, based on that assumption, the older brains must be struggling and need to recruit extra help from the right brain to perform the tasks. They're approaching this from a deficit-based point of view about older brains. Now, other scientists might say, oh, wait a minute, let's not assume that the younger brains are doing a better job. Both young and old completed the task, they just seem to have approached it in different ways. The young brains only used one hemisphere. The older brains used both hemispheres. Now, if you analyze this data with an asset-based attitude about older brains, you might conclude that, hmm, the older brains thought more deeply about it and more broadly about the task. They used the full capacity of their brains, engaging both hemispheres, whereas the poor, struggling, younger brains only used half of their potential brain power. The point is that the same data can be interpreted in two different ways, depending upon the mindset that you bring to the table. So when you're doing something and the topic of your age is brought up, consider whether people are operating out of a deficit-based mindset about your age. Are they assuming that you can't do something simply because of your age, because of your advanced years? Perhaps more important, recognize when you are doing the same thing to yourself. Notice when you are limiting yourself and using your age as an excuse. The Pluralism Monism Mindset This is a mindset that I've been thinking about since I did my graduate thesis on William James, the father of American psychology. Let me give you some background. In 1908 and 1909, William James, who I said is the father of American psychology, gave a series of famous lectures at Oxford University. And in these lectures, he proposed a new type of philosophy that broke with the philosophical traditions going back all the way to Socrates and Plato. He observed that two trends, the rise of scientific thinking along with the emergence of social democratic ideas, had changed the very nature of human imagination. And he called for an updated and practical philosophy that reflected these advances in human thinking and understanding. The older philosophies treated the universe as coherent and knowledgeable, as fixed. The truth was abstract and timeless. Truth was a stable entity that existed somehow separate and apart from daily experience. And those who recognized this truth all shared a singular worldview. James characterized this philosophical approach as monistic, because it's like all the different thoughts and perspectives that you might have come down and focus on a single monistic idea, the truth. James's own way of thinking led him to reject this absolutist philosophy that packaged reality into an orderly and idealized system. The key question for a modern philosophy was, according to James, quote, how do changing and variable minds understand changing and variable things according to changing and variable principles? End quote. Well, this is the modern dilemma. 
How do we maintain a sense of continuity and coherence in the face of constant, unrelenting change? James's new philosophy, which he called pluralism, tried to address this modern dilemma. He crafted a philosophy that was grounded in the diversity of human experience. According to pluralism, there is no single, abstract truth, but a multitude of changeable truths experienced differently by each individual. To find truth, therefore, we must welcome diversity of viewpoints and accept that the truth changes with time and with context. So, out of this philosophy, I've sort of put together what I call the pluralism-monism dyad. This mindset is concerned with how we search for truth and meaning in our lives. Monism seeks a single truth and tends to limit the scope of our imagination. Pluralism sees multiple truths in diverse perspectives and tends to open the mind and encourage broad exploration. We might then characterize the pluralism-monism dyad as open-minded versus closed-minded. So when you become aware that you struggle to cope with change and you're using fixed and inflexible ideas that you don't want to let go of, try doing a mindset reset. Break away from obsolete routines and from given ideas and be open and welcome to exploring multiple new perspectives. Expand the scope of your explorations. Think creatively. To sum up, performing what we call mindset resets is an important aspect of mental management. When you find yourself under the influence of a negative or maladaptive frame of mind, you can gently take a step back and flip to the more useful and productive opposite frame of mind. From negativity to positivity, from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset, and so on. The first step in this process, as we said, is awareness. You have to become more aware of when your thoughts, feelings, and actions are being influenced by a mindset. So you need to become more consciously aware of what your mind is thinking and feeling. Step two is to break the subtle hold your mindset has over you. Usually the mindsets work in the shadows and influence your behavior without your awareness. We feel grumpy and negative, for example, without really considering why. It's that sneaky mindset. But once you recognize that a mindset is working on you, you can bring it out of the shadows and into the light of day. There it is, your negativity mindset. Then it's easier to recognize that it's just the mindsets. It's just a thought, just a feeling. You don't have to obey it. You don't have to let it ruin your day. It isn't your master. You aren't its servant. One of the main functions of mindfulness meditation is to strengthen your awareness of what's going on in your mind and to train yourself to take a more objective perspective on what your mind is doing and what it is telling you to do. But you can do the same thing without meditation. When you find yourself daydreaming, or in the default mode, as neuroscientists would call it, just raise your conscious awareness about what your mind is doing. Focus a little bit more intently on the content of your daydreaming. What are you actually thinking about? What are you feeling? How interesting. Isn't it interesting what your mind is doing and how it's making you feel? So you don't try to silence the inner dialogue or erase the flow of images. You just want to be more aware of them and begin to have a greater conscious awareness of how they make you feel and how they are shaping your thoughts. You do this without judgment, 
and with a certain detachment. You try not to get caught up in the drama. Part of the discipline is recognizing that thoughts are just thoughts, nothing more. Feelings are just feelings. They will pass, if you let them. Psychologist Stephen C. Hayes has a clever technique for achieving this objective perspective about your musings and mindsets. He says that our minds engage in, quote, ongoing attempts at meaning-making, end quote, and that we need to become more skilled at giving our thoughts power, quotes, only to the degree that they genuinely serve us, end quote. Hayes suggests giving the voice inside our minds a name and a personality. I call my mind Marcello. Then when I realize that I'm daydreaming, I say, Ah, oh, thank you, Marcello. That's an interesting thought. I'm sure you're trying to help me with that, but that thought does not serve me well right now. I'm just going to let it go. Thank you. The idea, obviously, is to drain the negative thoughts and feelings of whatever power they have over us. What we do too often is to grab on to the negative thoughts, hold them close to our breast, and do all we can to inflate them and pump them up. You bet I'm mad, and I have good reason to be mad. There are all kinds of examples of how I've been betrayed and mistreated. Yeah, let me think of some of those examples right now and replay them in my mind. Oh yeah, there was that time. And we go on and on and on and on. When we ruminate or get into a panic attack, we get caught up in these, this negative feedback loop in which bad thoughts trigger bad feelings, which remind us of bad times, which reinforces how bad we feel, and on and on and on. We need to break that cycle. So awareness, perspective, and distancing with mindsets, since they tend to work as dyads, you can not only diminish the power of the negative thoughts, but you can also flip them from negative to positive. How do you get good at doing these mental tricks? Practice, practice, practice. You train yourself to become a skilled mental athlete. One of the benefits of brain health coaching is that your coach helps you to put together a training regimen that works for you, and then the coach runs your practice sessions for you. A good coach will make sure that you are practicing in the right way, a process called deliberate practice. You reinforce and strengthen what you do well, and you repeat and rehearse the skills that come easily to you, but your coach also makes sure that you practice the hard things, the skills that you don't do well, the skills that you don't like doing. Your coach makes sure that you correct mistakes and avoid repeating and reinforcing bad habits. This is the only way to achieve constant improvement, by addressing your weaknesses and turning them into strengths. If you are ready to get serious about your brain health and your mental management, go to our website and schedule a free consultation. We'll work out a brain and mind training regimen for you that, that addresses your needs, fits into your schedule, and gets you in shape to perform at optimum capacity.